This is Nick Bakai, voice of Salem from Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Having a bad fur day? <laughs> then be sure to listen to more monsters, madness, and magic. Oh. All right, folks. Justin here. Just offering another few words before we dive into this episode. As I've said on the previous two episodes, this was recorded prior to the SAG strike and contains no promotion of any current or future materials. Again, to address some of your questions that you've been asking me on social media, which you can find us on any social media platform by searching Monsters, Madness, and Magic. Now, considering actors do make up a percentage of our guests, I've been asked by several of you, what can we expect going forward? And it's pretty much more of the same. We're going to be having musicians, authors, artists, researchers just like we always have and for you longtime listeners you'll probably remember that our first two episodes were deep dives into occult oriented figures cornelius agrippa and john d now for some time i've been getting requests to bring those sort of episodes back so that's what we're going to do so if you've been wanting to hear more from us outside of our interview based content that's good news for you if not well i apologize but not really now Let's get into what we are all here for. In this episode, I chat with actor and writer Nick Bakai about Sabrina, Salem, the writer's strike, the King of Queens, working with Jerry Stiller, and more. As always, thank you for listening, and if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Right, we're in there. So, Nick, just so we have a platform to leap off, take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? (laughs) Interesting. Definitely a fort builder. Bit of a troublemaker. I remember early, early report card. (laughs) I was described uh, to my parents, who got a kick out of it. Thank God I had cool parents. I was described as a ringleader. (laughs) <laughs> in my report card and this was early so that label stuck with me with my parents and they always laughed don't forget you're a ringleader so <laughs> i was a comic book reader not a book reader but that kicked in later you know mm, yeah now when you say comics did you have did you lean towards a specific writer or maybe marvel dc uh, i Archie? grew up you know i my mom would buy me like old uh, DC Murphy Anderson Superman era stuff and Flash, mm. Carmine Infantino era, and this is all before I could actually read. So, but I loved them, and I would just look at the pictures and and the art, especially those flashes of that era. The art really made a huge impression on me. But when I started to read comics, I moved over to Marvel. 
content wise although i read everything and i was a, a fairly avid comic book collector until until i was about you know like 12 or whenever you know puberty knocked that out of me hard but <laughs> up until then i was down you know and I, it's funny i recently i held on to all my comic books and i recently sold them i guess maybe this was within the last four or five years Really? I sat on. I held on to them. I dragged them around everywhere I lived throughout my whole life. And I, I finally sold them and put that into my kids' college funds. So, but it's because it, I, I got lucky, you know, timing being everything. Oh, gosh. The timing for comic books was good in my life because, you know, I'm old enough that there was no such thing as a marketplace. And then there was just starting to be one. And at the time where I got kind of, oh, interesting. So, you know, you could buy, you know, you could buy a decent condition Daredevil number one for $8, you know? Yeah. And your parent and your parents would faint and say you're an imbecile. And, you know, you'd stick them in a bag. I mean, you know, and I, and I had a lot of interesting number ones. They were all, none of them were in, you know, beautiful, minty condition, but I had a lot of good comics. And I had a ton of old great marvels because that was my era the old steve ditko jack kirby era i was gonna say you must have had a pretty extensive collection to be able to have be it substantial enough to put in a college fund well it's not gonna pay for college it'll probably pay for you know books but every it, little that, bit yes yeah, it right? does <laughs> i think that's how my generation is feeling hoping about our pokemon cards <laughs> you know and that's funny because that's when my kids are sitting on those and i'm looking at them and uh, and i'm saying you know <laughs> i look saying hey keep that in its little wrapper kid you know don't be, don't don't one, sit on it one day <laughs> one, you never know you never, never know so nick when you think back to uh formative films and tv shows that you grew up on what, what comes to mind mm -hmm. initially oh that's interesting you know it's funny first thing that jumped to mind was johnny quest because i was talking to my wife about it and she didn't remember it and it's not like she's older. She's older than me. She's not younger. Ha, don't, don't tell her I told you that. But <laughs> um, somehow she missed Johnny Quest. It's not like I'm one of these Hollywood guys with the 12-year-old wife. You know, it's like, no. I, you know, I'm, my wife is age appropriate. But she just somehow she missed Johnny Quest. So I had to give her some shit about that, you know. You know, she was more about the monkeys and Davy Jones, I think. But I have sort of a macro on this that I think is interesting because I'm of the generation where there were three networks as a kid. And what that meant is so different than the way all this stuff is consumed now. You had to watch things you didn't like. And you couldn't decide what you liked before you watched it. And you couldn't sort of be sort of ghettoized into a category. Like, I just like to watch Nat Geo, and that's it. You know, it's like, you know, it's sort of like radio back then. You know, AM radio had was eclectic. TV was eclectic. But I really, I've talked about this with a lot of people that I've written with over the years, and I feel like a lot of my writing voice and my comedic voice was shaped by all the stuff that you know. I was definitely a TV kid, and to watch TV was better than to not watch it. But I had to suffer through a lot of awful stuff. It was watching the things that I really had contempt for that I think are essential to my voice as a writer. <laughs> and, you know, I look at my, my kids who can just say, no, 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 no. And I'm like, look, it, if you never had to watch the Lawrence Welk show, you're already got an arm tied behind your back as a comedy writer. You know, if you never had to watch 
lamp unto my feet or you have these all judd for the defense and these awful you know shows that people your age have never heard of and never have any reason to know about but i had to watch this crap and it formed me my friend it formed me <laughs> i think that stuff influenced me as much as the stuff i loved like you know i loved first generation star trek and i i loved i mean you know I'm, all these you know the obvious stuff it, the good stuff's good for a reason, and I liked it, right? Right. So you mentioned Star Trek. When the next generation came around, were you one of the OG fans that was skeptical at first? I was. I remained skeptical. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, yeah, no, I understood. never, I never, I never, I ne you know, sci-fi had never really been my jam. OG Star Trek, though, I mean, I've never loved the TV show more. But um, no, these subsequent generations, more power to them, but not, not for me. Understood, you know? understood. And I, and I, have, I don't have a Star Trek bone in my body, uh, Star Wars bone in my body. Yeah, me neither. Oh, not really. Not, not, oh, good. Good. See? I knew <laughs> I liked you. Um, but, you know, it's just that's not really my jam. My, it's just not my thing, you know, but I loved Star Trek. So how early on do you remember exploring writing yourself creatively? When did you start to tinker around with maybe short stories or stuff like that? You know, it's funny. I really I didn't. It's writing, I have a different path into it than I think a lot of people. While I was always very creative and I always was really into creating characters and I was a very good improvisational actor and I could jump into character and I could improvise in character in dialogue in dialect do anything you want that way and that was a strength I did not ever I did not grow up wanting to write it just was not my thing but it's what I turned into and you know I always I always you know advise young people who want to get into the creative world you know, just keep an open mind because the thing that you set out to do is going to morph and shape shift and get weird on you and you may end up doing exactly what you set out to do there's just as good a chance that you're going to end up adjacent in a way that you can't imagine so try to stay bendy good advice so uh, were either your parents involved in the business at all or artistically inclined no, anything like that not really you know i mean no you know it really was just sort of the thing that was in me my dad was a um, he was a neurosurgeon so the apple fell very far from the tree in that regard <laughs> and you know, my mom was a beautiful and talented she's sort of model singer back in the day but no you know i mean in terms of you know what i do know there was no there was nothing to indicate that this is what was going to happen i'm also first i'm first generation uh, my father used to turn to my mom all the time and say we gave birth to the all-american boy i have no idea how this happened but look it's what happened you know <laughs> so this is something i like to ask everyone just because you never know what scared you as a kid oh the first thing that comes to mind and my children love and delight in this I, there's an old terrible movie called the killer shrews but i you know i used to love to stay up and watch the scary movie because again three channels you know friday night at 11 30 i think it was fridays you, they put the local scary movie library movie on and i spent a lot of my childhood just couldn't wait for that right that's a great old tradition for guys my generation but you know there were some of these things that just hit me before I was ready. <laughs> and I, this movie, The Killer Shrews, I wasn't ready. 
and it, you know you watch it now you, you can google the trailer for this thing and it don't while i'm here because it's so humiliating although i've shown it to my sons who are so unbelievably delighted that this scared me enough that i couldn't sleep for three months afterwards but it terrified me and it's you know the basic premise that these people are you know shipwrecked on a weirdo island with some mad scientist who's experimenting and he's grown shrews you know which are tiny but fierce animals into the size of you know dogs right and they've taken over the island and they're eating you know and it's this movie is so brutally unscary and it's just a bunch of scotty dogs with pelts sewn on them running you know it, it is so but man let me tell you i honestly i slept on the floor in my parents room for like easily two months after that and couldn't sleep with the lights out you know it just it, it worked me hard brother what was the name of it again? The Killer Shrew. You're in for quite a treat. There's an early scene there with some guy stuck up a tree and then the tree tips over and the shrews pounce on him. And they are so clearly a bunch of Scotty dogs with like bad, you know, prosthetic dentures and just bad fur on them. But little me did not see any of that and I never got over Oh, you'll love this. It's it, it's great. Uh, it's just awful and great, black and white, and everything about it is terrible. And you know, but boy, my suspension of disbelief was complete at the too early age I watched this thing on you know Channel Seven or whatever. That and you know the the moment in the Wizard of Oz, which was always on every year on TV when I was a kid too, when the witch the house lands on when her legs would roll up. That is also that I, I had problems with that moment too so you know but it was such an annual event that i learned when it was coming and i would look away so i trained myself to <laughs> manage the moment and those are two things that two things that really had big big issues with as a kid killer shrews gotcha <laughs> killer, killer shrews and those little rolled up legs and the red stock stripey legs problems so Nick, can you remember your very first time on stage? Now, whether that's you know in the church play or doing stand up, you know, what was your first time on stage? Yeah, I remember early school plays. There was, I think, it was called the Harvest Moon. It's one of these, you know, plays. I think I was in the fourth grade or third grade, and I played a frog who had who was sick and had a song with a lot of, you know, and but I killed. I brought the house down. And I got the fee. I got the fever, you know. <laughs> so you were a theater kid. It's funny, Justin. I was really. I, I I knew I had the ability at that point, but a lot of things took my interest. You know, at one point I was going to be a, an artist for Marvel. At one point I was going to be a pro football player. I had great dreams. I was going to play pro football. I was going to be an architect in the off season because back then athletes didn't make enough money and they knew that they all had off season jobs. I had all this stuff worked out. None of it worked out for me. <laughs> um, but, you know, in the back of my mind, every time there was a play or anytime I did anything on stage, I just, I knew, oh, I had this one in my, this, this arrow's in my quiver. I got this one. Mm. I'll probably, and as it turned out, that one held its water much more than being a defensive end. <laughs> <laughs> you start on theater. How did the transition to screen happen for you? You know, it's funny. I, I trained with an actor and I went to New York City and I did 
theater for a long time. I didn't do a lot in New York. I just wasn't good enough, you know. But I would do a lot of regional theater and I did touring. And, you know, I, I had wonderful experiences doing that. But it was, it was tough. It just, you know, it wasn't happening. And, you know, if you're a 23-year-old actor in New York City in the 1980s, there were quite a few, not a ton of demand. It was hard to, because I, I did just well enough to get my heart broken a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, I, yeah. I, I would work and then I wouldn't work and I went and you know this that and the other thing and i just i couldn't really get momentum and during that time i knew a guy who worked at the national lampoon magazine and he always thought i had a good sense of humor and i'd run into him at parties and he'd say and this kind of goes back to what i was saying about you know keep an open mind he'd say hey if you ever want to try anything let me know and in my mind i was so rigid i thought but no i'm here to be an actor you know and it took me a while but then one day i realized why are you being so resistant because this shit's not working <laughs> as they used to say but it, it's gonna happen and so i i approached him and i started to sort of do the, the the sort of basic beginner stuff there which was to write the fake letters to the editor and i had a blast and it went well and i I ended up working there for a while and it changed everything. And all of a sudden I realized, Jesus, this is the antithesis of my acting career. <laughs> um, you know, if you can write something funny, there's a demand for this. It's like being a left-handed pitcher, you mm. know, there's just not, yeah, this is the exact opposite of being one of a million young actors. So all of a sudden interesting things started to happen and, and through a weird series of events, it led to me being hired as a writer at the very dawn of what is now Comedy Central, which was at that point there were two channels that were launched on basic cable comedy. The Comedy Channel, which is where I worked, and then another one called Ha. And Ha was sort of the Viacom MTV entry into that world. Comedy Channel was, was HBO Time Warner. Gotcha. And they were both vying at that time there were limited slots and they both wanted to get the comedy thing going like MTV was the music channel. There was only one. There would be a comedy channel. And I got on board writing for, um, I got hired, Eddie Gorodetsky and Alan Havey, both have played massively significant parts of, in my career brought me in to write for their late night show and then i started to uh, be on camera as well as writing be involved with some very seminal shows there and that's when everything changed for me you know it was the end of my theater career <laughs> and the beginning of my tv and my writing career and, and and it was it took hold in a way that it was clear this is what you were supposed to be doing and every ever since then i've been doing a version of that just like you were saying earlier be open-minded you still adjacently got to where you were wanting to go just not on yeah. the theater stage. <laughs> not, not, yeah, in, in such a different way, you know, it really was, yeah. I mean, you know, but as it started to unfold, at least at that point, I'd been beaten down enough to, to sort of have an open mind out of necessity, but also I had been around enough to realize at least I had enough wisdom to go, why would you fight this? And I will say my time working, we had a studio on 23rd Street in Manhattan, where we would do these shows and everyone there was starting out cutting their teeth it was almost a collegiate experience and i know 
most of the people I work with there feel the same way. Made friends for life. I met my wife, Robin, there. The people who I worked with there, many of whom remain important people in my life as friends and also creatively and professionally. You know, the Higgins boys and Groover, Alan Havy, Scott Carter, who went on to produce Bill Maher's show for years. I, mean, I could go on and on. <laughs> it was a, you know, there, it was a training ground for an interesting number of people, though it's not it's not a footnote in anyone's awareness, but lots of interesting people got their start there. John Stewart, Michael Patrick King, who has gone on to, he shepherded Sex and the City and Two Broke Girls, and is a brilliant and wonderful guy. I mean, I could go on and on. There's so many interesting people who that was their first shot in TV, knocking out this weird format, five day, five shows a week, and just cutting our teeth. And I, I met tremendous people in every role over there it remains one of the greatest parts of my life so uh speaking of hopefully great parts of your life don't want to assume but uh sabrina premieres in 96 <laughs> yeah oh yeah sure <laughs> <laughs> so do you recall that being just you know a typical audition business as usual or was it right place right time sort of thing listen again a very strange roundabout thing i uh up to that point, I had done all sorts of sort of, I don't know, at the time, edgy late night and sketch stuff was my career. So I went from comedy channel and late night and really cutting edge stuff. I came to LA as when Dennis Miller had a syndicated talk show Yep. right off of SNL. I was his announcer, sidekick, and a writer. Went from that to In Living Color did a sketch show called She TV on ABC. I mean, I, th there were so many interesting things going on, but they all sort of had a brief lifespan. And the Sabrina job came a, about, and there was n no formal audition or anything, nothing about it, it just happened. I did a strange project, Joel Hodgson of Mystery Science Theater 3000, who was also one of the people I got to know at the Dawn of Comedy Channel. And, you know, there's nothing but amazing things to say about him. He did a project called The TV Wheel. I got lucky enough that he brought me in. I was in it, and I got to help write it, along with a lot of interesting people. And one of those people is Nell Scovell, who was the person who wrote and got the Sabrina TV show rolling. We worked together. I didn't know her. We worked for it, this TV wheel project. Maybe it was two weeks total, right? And then when she was doing Sabrina, which was soon after, I had also come to sort of a crisis point and realized I don't, I did not want to do half hour comedies. I had done other things. It was just not my ambition. At that point, there were a lot of them. It was a way to make a living and it was time to make a living, you yeah. know? It was time to do something that didn't have us flying by the seat of our pants every minute of our life. And I talked to my representatives at the time and I said, well, I guess I should bite the bullet and maybe consider this. And at that same time, they reached out to me about Sabrina, which did not do a traditional pilot. They had done a movie for, I want to say Showtime. And Ryan Reynolds plays Harvey Kinkle in it, or a boyfriend in it, I think. It's very strange. The only thing in common with the show is that Paula Hart produced it and Melissa is Sabrina. Wow. Everything else is different. It's not, It's it's a single camera movie. It's not a comedy, I don't think. I'm not even aware and of I that. Think, is it out yeah, there? Yeah, no. It, I, mean, I don't even know. 
But the off of that and the presentation tape, ABC brought, bought the premise of this show as a half-hour comedy for TGIF. So I got brought in to write on the show, and I was doing the Angry Beavers. I'd done a lot of voiceover at that time i was already norbert on the angry beavers on nickelodeon and i read for the they didn't have a pilot they just had a series pickup so i auditioned for the cat and got that at that time for salem and so i the first four years i wrote and was the cat and, it, and i went in there sort of kicking and screaming thinking like oh my god this is the this is the end of my relevance but i guess we're going to eat as is typical again keep an open mind turned into great gig and ton of fun and i worked with lots of good writers from whom i learned a lot about how to do half hours as a writer and i got to write and be this hilarious character so you know and all the, the gigs you take with these fabulous pedigrees they often don't pan out and you go into some of the weird ones and look at what happens. So, At least to my ear, I can sort of hear that Salem is not far from your speaking voice. Were you given much direction yeah. for the, the voice itself when you went in? You know, it, it, no. I mean, at that point, I had done enough voice work. And, I, you know, the marketplace tells you what you're going to do. And I realized uh, I'm not... I'm not going to be the man of a thousand voices, which, you know, it's not like I'm not capable of that type of thing, but others were far better at that. But what I did find out between all the commercials I did and Norbert on a certain level and Salem and everything I did with any real legs to it, my voice was very good at sort of capturing a certain attitude and it was close to my voice, mm. but I just upped the snide sarcasm. You know, it just, it was not really changing my voice. It was changing attitude and putting that. And, you know, obviously with Salem, there was also, there were things that we found were just hilarious. If I just threw in a little bit of that, that bird lar. Oh no. You know, like when, when things were upside down, oh, you know, it just, there are things you do to, and, you know, with Norbert, there were different, there were different hooks, different vocal hooks were very different. And Norbert was sort of the cool, groovy brother. Whereas Salem was, you know, I, I recently was on like the Australian version of the Today Show. And I was saying, you know, what was funny about that character was that, you know, he was this despotic guy who wanted to take over the world. And his punishment was being consigned to life as a house pet, stuck in this teenage girl's bedroom. You know, it's like, imagine Vladimir Putin stuck as a... Not, bang you're a cat the only one who'll listen to you is this teenage girl you know it's just how can you lose with that so you know. <laughs> but if you if you think about the bitterness of that and the ambition of that it helps inform the voice i think the uh the australian good morning america show i think that's called uh good day good day mate <laughs> good day mates had a lovely time i will not speak disparaging <laughs> I don't think they have the internet in Australia. You know, it's fine. Says the guy who a tornado just knocked his out for a few seconds. Nice, yeah. nice work. Says the guy in South Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I had no idea that you were voicing Salem live. I always assumed it would be like in post, you know, similar to, you know, I guess, anime or cartoons. Or yeah. Something. yeah. I didn't know what to expect as we were going at that thing either. But yeah, the first four seasons... You know, I was there all day writing, and we didn't shoot that thing like a live show because the effects, as primitive as they were, took forever. 
there was no way that was going to be a live audience multicam. So I'd be in there writing, and whenever the Salem scenes came on up on the schedule, I'd hop down to stage and I'd be off camera with a boom mic. And there were three puppeteers who, you know, ran that animatronic and Kathy Pittman, the trainer, who could get these live cats to do things that were as inconceivable you could get a cat to do. And between, it took a village to bring that unconvincing cat to life. But, you know, we really had a thing. Tom Fountain was the, the head of the puppeteer crew and also ran the mouth. and. It was almost like a piano accompanist. He was, you know, he was incredible at following me as we did that dialogue live. And we really got it done. We had a group going. We had a blast. And, you know, there was even room to sort of, I, in a weird way, let the performances be organic in a mm. way that, you know, they were different. You know, when I, I later moved on, I went and uh, after the fourth season was over, I went to write on King of Queens. And at that point, Tom would do the scratch track, same thing live, and then I would go loop that. Oh. And you know, and it was different. It, it was fine, but it was different. You just mentioned King of Queens. I wanted to ask you about that because that was a one of my favorite shows of that era. If you had any memories you could share of uh, Jerry Stiller, who passed away a few years ago. No. You know what? The first thing is that he was the nicest guy in the world. You know. Honestly, it's so funny, and there's no one in the, no one who 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 got laughs the way he did. It's interesting. It's like I I worked on the Kaminsky method, and Alan Arkin recently passed away, and it was like that. You know, you'd watch him do things, and you know, you walk away. The comedy came from a unique delivery. It was no one else on earth who did things the way Alan Arkin did and that was true with Jerry as well he was brilliant and 100% unique writing for him was an absolute joy <laughs> because it was you just started laughing thinking about what could come out of this character and this actor's mouth but also no one was more conscientious no one took the work more seriously and he was delightful he was nice he was generous he was big hearted. I absolutely loved him. He was great. Just great. That that's what I remember from Jerry. And the, you know, it was just you know, and we shot that. There's a show. We had that classic sitcom tape night Friday in front of a crowd. And it was just, you know, him and Kevin and Leah, and it was something so magic. And and I I mean that was it's like game day for an athlete. It was when those three were firing on all burners, it was just you get goosebumps, and it was magic. I felt, I felt very lucky. From King of Queens, that's how you established the relationship with Kevin and how you guys came together with Paul Blart. That's right, yeah. I loved working with Kevin. We got to be very close. Also, just we really had a, a great time working together. And yeah, that's that's what led to the Mall Cop. We wrote the Mall Cop movies and uh, Zookeeper together, mm, yeah. and we... Um, we really, really had a blast doing it. I love Kevin. So when it comes to writing, you mentioned you were in the writer's room on Sabrina. How does that look when you have multiple writers writing one show? Is there one guy writing the first it's draft? Different. And, you know, how does that work? That's the, the traditional model was always <clears throat> somebody would be, you know, the room would pitch, you pitch an area, it got vetted by the room. There's the head writer, the showrunner is the gatekeeper on everything. And once something passed muster as an area, it got fleshed out. Then it would be turned into an outline, often in en masse. 
then that outline, somebody would be sent off to write a draft, get notes on that draft, do a second pass. Then that draft would be tabled by the entire group. You know, it's, it's like the layers of an onion. Then that would be exposed at a table read. You'd hear it. You'd rewrite based on what you heard. Then run-throughs on its feet. You're rewriting, run-through again, rewriting. You're rewriting on set in between takes. It never ends. And that is sort of the, that was always the traditional model, especially for multicam or half-hour sitcoms. Although in, in you know for the last ten years or so, I've worked with um, Chuck Lorre, and the approach there is very different. Where we've done everything, there is no going off on draft, which I've come to really like because you know you could call that the heartbreak draft. You know, there's certain people go off and they write a draft, and it's like bubble, it's great, but a lot of times it's uh, inefficient. It's a bit of a fool's errand because that script comes in, and then you know whether it's appropriate or not that script gets fucked with till fairly well you know um whether it's the person running things needs to put their mark on it or whether it's a disaster and it really needs it you know all points in between you know we we refer to those as the heartbreak draft and you, you put you go on for two weeks you bust your ass you put everything into this and then it gets you know you watch the car get taken apart piece by piece and rebuilt in front of you know it's like well what was that all about now if you have a really good uh, a really good room that's a well-oiled machine you can do all of this much more efficiently and incredibly well at a table every part of this and i've done it both ways i actually for the machine that is 22 to 20 back in the day 24 25 or more episodes a year of Mm. a network show for just the ford assembly line of that the table writing in if you have the right person at the wheel is uh is a a superb way to go i ran the show mom for cbs for eight seasons and we did it that way and we it worked out great and you know sending people off on script would have been just would just slowed us up I'm telling you. You know, there are other ways to do it. You can, if you're going to go do your streaming show and you have eight of them and you're an auteur, go write them. That's great. But if you get, you know, network notes and studio notes and 22 of these things and difficult actors, you know, you call it like you, you call it what it is. You know, you're a foreman in the factory and you get all hands on deck going, baby. So, turnaround wise, per episode, what are you looking at? You're saying. You know, you record live. Is it you have one episode, you write it, and then you record it the same week? No, no. It's it's it, well, you know, there, there that that can happen. Depending that that is your worst scenario. Oh, okay. it's called that's called writing the table, and that's when you shit the bed <laughs> for a variety of reasons. That means like at the end of the year, whether your star just throws scripts out that they, you know, the, there's so many scenarios that can lead to it. The network notes you so abhorrently and relentlessly that you can't sell a glass of lemonade on the street, and you just fucked. And you, 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 you know, well, we got to show shoot a show Friday, so what are we gonna do? You know, or you've got a star who's just a pain in the ass asshole, and they vetted your story and they vetted the script, and then, and then Monday you read at the table and they go, "This sucks. I hate to throw it out and start for it." You know, I mean, all these things happen. And they've happened a lot. Whatever it is, or the thing's just not working. 
and it's the writer's fault that I, you can't you know i can't be a writer and just say it's all these external factors there are people running shows who shouldn't be doing it and you know they they don't know how to stay ahead of the ball either i expedited in a new york city restaurant had one of my few panic attacks in life because when you fall behind in a mat in a new york restaurant on friday night you're not going to get out of the weeds you're fucked for the night mm-hmm. and everyone's yelling at you know well that's like running a show you've got to know how to stay ahead you've got to know how to stay on top of things so writers can be responsible for it too or they just the show's a mess it's just not happening and no one has the fix for whatever reason there are days where it's like every week you're writing for the and you know how good can that be not too good my friend right <laughs> <laughs> but in a perfect world, no, you know, you're 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 anticipating all of this. You know, you go into the sh- your pre-production time. You're going into the season with thick scripts written and approved and ready to rock, and you stay in front of that the whole year. By and it's a lot of it is how you deploy your troops. You don't walk around saying, "I'm the showrunner, I'm the genius." Watch everyone, watch me man you delegate you have you know what people do well and you take full advantage of it and you don't ask them to do the things they don't do well and you just stay in front of it and you make sure that everything you know it's a factory i'm back to that analogy but it's like while one room is polishing that week's script you got another room breaking new ones you're selling the ones you're fixing the old you're doing the you know you have four things going at once that's why somebody i know said running a show is like you have to be creative while managing an am pm market mm. you have to be able to do these things at once and you have to have really good a really good team to do that and i do not want to talk and go off on a tangent here but one of the things that the writers are on strike about right now is if you chop these rooms down to nothing and you fill them with one veteran and three rookies you're 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 nuts you can't do it you're going to you know it's it's you know it's just a formula for shit on shit because it is hard to do this well not that many people can and <clears throat> you but you have to have some troops you have to have bodies and you have to have a certain number of veteran professionals or you can't do it and i'm not saying you have to have a million of them you got to have you got to have some you got to have some numbers and you got to pay them and you, you got to pay them hell yeah you got to pay them you know i'm sorry i didn't what get you're into supposed this to pay business <laughs> you know i didn't get in this you know i could have stayed back home in buffalo and you know driven the forklift i did one year you know but i didn't do this to do that you know i i but also you know you also do need the young people to be around those people so they learn i had to learn You know, I said it at the top of this interview when I got on board on Sabrina, I was around veteran writers who knew what they were doing and they helped me learn how to do it. And the same thing was true every stop along the way. It took me a long time to learn how to do this. And that's the way it is. You don't you're not born a showrunner. So just speaking of in the same vein, uh, Nick, out of all the projects you've worked on, TV, film, stage, what have you, which one would you consider the most challenging as the one you lost sleep over? Oh, that's a good question. The, you know, lost sleep are always the ones that are problematic, frankly. You know, I just did a new series for Max, HBO, Max. who knows what they're calling it or what they will be calling it, called Bookie, and it's with Sebastian Maniscalco. I did it with Chuck Lorre and 
it was the most fun I've had in a million years. And as challenging as it was, because it was new and it was original, it was also, I didn't lose sleep. I woke up at 5 a.m. like Christmas morning because this one just went, it went great. Everything about it, writing it, the cast, the process, beautiful. The ones that you lose sleep over are the ones, you know, and there was more of this back in the day for me, but bad show, bad showrunner. Mm. You know, when you're there till three in the morning and you're polishing a turd, right? You know, I mean, you know, when you're just, you're there because somebody can't make up their mind or somebody doesn't want to go home because they're getting divorced. Oh, God. Or, yeah, you know, <laughs> or just, or just, but the worst is just like they don't trust the process, you know, and they don't want, they, they think that this can't, and I'm not saying that everything is easy. They're, everything is a process, but this process doesn't have to be a grind like we're working with Oppenheimer here. And I've worked with too many people who want to go out like, mm, we all laugh too easily at that one. Or the people are just like, they won't even listen to the first five pitches. They want pitch number 12 because that's how they got into Harvard or whatever, you know. And pitch 12, pitch 12 is a bag of shit. Sorry. Funny people are funny on one, two, three, going to be pretty funny. 12 is going to be like, you're already thinking about like, who was that girl I fucked in 1982? <laughs> you know, come on, help me out here. Right. So that, that, you know, that, that's, well said. <laughs> that's my, my, be my beautiful solution. <laughs> so what is the best writing advice you've received in your career and who gave it to you? That's interesting. Well, I've, it, it, you know, I've gotten a lot. The first one that comes to mind is advice I got from Chuck Lorre. There's often, especially in the early going, when you're in charge of writing these things, story breaking is where you have the most stress. And you feel this sort of inner pressure to be extremely, for lack of a better word, clever, that we have to have 14 twists and a gimmick and a this and a that. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there are people who are really good at it and more power to them. But he was the one who really encouraged me to say, what would really happen next? What would somebody really do in this situation? And <clears throat> don't be afraid to keep your story really simple. And I would watch him time after time take a story that was far too ornate and break it down to the essential moves in a simpler fashion. And all of a sudden it was there. And I did take that away from that. And it really, it changed me because I was, I knew I had, I knew I had game and I was valuable in writing rooms in many ways, but I also knew where my deficiencies were and I was very honest with myself about them <laughs> for many years story would have been exhibit a i just i fucking hated it and i would go just i'd have to you know burn myself with cigarettes to stay awake during story breaking because it was just but also i was breaking stories on shows that were about irrelevant bullshit you know it's like uh, you know what what wedding gift are we gonna get the harrelsons and i'd be like could, which jump window can I jump out of here? Because, you know, I, I don't I don't know how to do this. 
Right. I can make the Harrelsons funnier than fuck, and I'll get you home. But I don't know, but we're going to get two or three acts out of a wedding gift. I can me that cigarette and burn myself right in the balls. See if I can stay awake. You know, this is torture on the highest plane of torture. And then when you start to get into what would be real and human, and you also are lucky enough to work in a context that allows you to tell story that way, which is also not always the case. So I, it was, I was privileged to get away from that. It all came clear. And I could all of a sudden look at a blank whiteboard on driveboard on the wall and not wet my pants. No, we're, we're fine. Plus, I, I was in the case of mom, I had the writing staff murderers row. I had everything that we're striking for. I had a staff of brilliantly talented people, many of whom were former showrunners, many of whom will be and was you know i never had to go to work and have a bad table read and go oh and walk away from it going god i have to fix this i never had to worry about that i always says i could always say to myself someone's i have a brilliant staff here someone's gonna have this it doesn't have to be me and when you breathe everything good happens when you relax and breathe everything's possible and those those writers made everything possible for me. Some I like to ask everyone, just because you never know what they're going to say. Have you ever had an experience you would consider supernatural or paranormal? <laughs> <laughs> That's it's a great question. I come from you know I my father was a Hungarian man of science, although even he had a I think was open to the mystical. But my mother from a long line of Irish magical thinkers, so I had. A lot, I had both sides warring as I developed. Personally, I'll tell you the one thing that I can't, I am, I was raised completely religion free. But there was a moment in my childhood when we were, I think we were in uh, Martha's Vineyard or Cape Cod, somewhere like that. We were out swimming. My mom and I were together. My dad was somewhere else. And the tide came in and there was a hurricane. There was some weather condition and made all of a sudden a terrible water situation happened where we were trapped out in the water and you could not swim ashore we were just waiting and it was weird and i knew something was wrong and i remember my, my mom starting to yell for help in a way that i knew like oh this is bad and my father being the smart guy that he was swam with the tide he wasn't with us and got to a boat because he was certifiable genius we weren't with it we, we were there like you know a couple of just bold. we were fucked right <laughs> and i remember seeing like a van pull up on the shore and two people jumping out of it to swim to help us strangers but they knew the situation and they couldn't get to us and that's when i was like oh, on. here we go this is really bad and lo and behold out of nowhere Two nuns in a rowboat. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Sounds like a joke. <laughs> it does. Two <laughs> nuns in, in habits, full gear, in a rowboat, pull up to us and pull us into the boat and save us. Man. That's the closest thing I got for you. I've never, I don't think I've had any, I, I would love to say I've got, you know, raped by an apparition <laughs> or something, you know, or Bigfoot jerked me off on the school bus. I got nothing like that. Sounds like you've but listened to previous you, episodes. No. <laughs> I will now, let me tell you. Um, 
I now expect this podcast to rocket to the top of the charts. Look out, Joe Rogan. But it really was, we're, we're coming, Joe. But it was, you know, just a bizarre, one of those weird things, or, you know, just, it, and, um, you know, it did not turn me to Christ. It didn't turn me away. It just, but I often look back on that. And it was, you know, it had some good iconography. It had some good magic. It was inexplicable to this day. I don't know what that was all about, but they saved me. Hey, that counts. It sure does. So uh, just to put a bow on everything here, Nick, is there anything on the horizon for you that you can share without getting in trouble? Well, no. Um, you know, one of these days, and I do not know when, Bookie with Sebastian Maniscalco will be dropping on Max. And it, it, it was a really fun. That is, that, that's my big plug, and it's a good one, so I'll stick I'll, <laughs> I'll, st- I'll quit there. It was really fun. You do a great job. Nice <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. uh, I I really enjoyed that, and I wish you the best. So thank you, Nick. I'll uh, send you a link once I get this edited and posted and all that good stuff. I'll put it out there in the world, my friend. All right, you have a good rest of your night. All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Nick. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day, all with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.